But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat now. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> David, last episode, uh, you went out of your way at the end uh, to uh, say you wanted to talk about this. This is a... Um, so uh, this is a video of uh, – it's a YouTube video. Again, apologies, folks. We'll do our best to describe this thing. YouTube video from what appears to be like a security camera or some sort of webcam or some sort of fixed camera um, looking out at the sort of main part of a runway um, at an airport that I later discovered is actually Fort Collins um, Municipal Airport in Colorado. Um, and it uh, – um, has an interesting thing happen. David, tell us what, what we see and why you were you really wanted to talk about this. What we see at about three seconds into this video is uh, a Black Hawk helicopter uh, launch. And then uh, about 24, 25 seconds after the helicopter leaves the scene, uh, what turns out to be a Cirrus comes into the shot on the left side, wings level, just barely at the visible uh, uh, at the horizon. It starts in wings level, a second and a half, second three quarters later, the left wing drops, it comes down, drags a tip, cartwheels, uh, does a number on the airplane, and as it turns out, the guy walked away. Yeah. Now, this airplane, just to be clear, was, was actually aiming, was on landing, was, was just about to touch down. Yeah, and and uh, and then flew into the air that was just previously occupied by this Black Hawk helicopter. Well, that's the part that's been yeah. debated, uh, right? Because if you look at the uh, if you look at the video as the helicopter taking off from the perspective of where it actually lifted off, this all started to happen to the Cirrus uh, somewhat before that on the runway. Uh, Jeb, you no. sent us. Uh, you sent us the uh, what appears to be the preliminary NTSB report on this. Is that what that's, this is? That's correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and rather than me read it and not listen to you guys talk, tell me what it says, Jeb. Well, it, it's it's at odds with the video. Is the first problem? Okay. Um, it says the student pilot entered the traffic pattern. Yada yada yada. Uh, observed the UH-60 helicopter on downwind and delayed his turn to base until the helicopter was on final, abeam his position. While on final, the student pilot adjusted his aim point to land long as he was concerned with wake turbulence and wanted to land beyond the helicopter's touchdown point. That's not what happened here. The helicopter was departing. Yeah. yeah. So and and if you if you go back and you look at where the helicopter was departing from. You'll see it was basically lifting off from the, um, uh, I can't, it looks like the second set of hash marks on the runway, i.e. about 1,000 feet from the threshold, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, it's, 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 it's up, it's maybe 20 feet in the air and accelerating down the runway when the video begins, and that's at the zero zero mark, and then you scroll to about the uh, let's see, at twenty seven second mark, the Cirrus just enters the frame mm-hmm. from the left, yep, and um, is maybe aiming for, I guess aiming beyond that thousand foot uh, uh, set of hash marks, um, but even then, it's starting to lose. Uh, is starting to bank, is starting to, to lose control. Right over those hash marks, it's got maybe a 20-degree, 15, 20-degree bank, um, and is about that same 20 feet above the runway. And then from there, the whole thing falls apart. Right. Um, but it's hard to reconcile the NTSB preliminary um, with... The video, although the NTSB preliminary does in a separate paragraph simply say an airport surveillance camera captured the accident airplane approaching the runway about 30 seconds in trail of the helicopter. Right. Which is indeed what we see in this video. Um, Now, the ultimate question is, did the helicopter's, what do you call it, rotor wash or... um, 
vortices or whatever you want to call them, is that what caused or is that approximate cause yeah. of this accident? I don't know. I, I mean, obviously we don't know. It, it, it certainly it certainly is easy to visualize that that's what happened. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, helicopters, as as we all know, cause an incredible amount of, of turbulence, of rotor wash and and and. Uh, well, air going it's, swirling and rolling and doing all the things that air does and uh, well yeah and you got you got two different two different uh, propulsive forces going on on that helicopter one top down and the other one from one side to the other back there on the tail rotor uh, setting up two different kinds of rotor wash at the same time yeah uh, that can't be easy to handle uh, yeah. uh, quite a testament to the strength of the uh, carbon fiber airframe. I think mm-hmm. that was a pretty good tumble. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's just you know, man oh man. When when you're in in what? Well, I don't know. Some people might think one of the more benign parts of the of the of the uh, flight, you know, which is like just about to touch down. You're just about to let out that breath, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, what's the what's the recommended sudden, time span behind another airplane like that? Oh, I don't know. Don't, don't there isn't really. Stand? There really isn't a time span per se. There's there's a three minute ATC requirement for uh. a, a light aircraft departing behind a heavier aircraft. Um, and now, let's put some meat on that pound. Um, I forget where the cutoff is. I want to say it's at 100,000 pound gross weight. Uh, anything below that does not merit the mandatory three minutes. Mm-hmm. Anything above that does merit the mandatory three-minute delay, but the pilot can waive that delay. Okay. Okay. Hey, here's and another... Then, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. Well, well, I, was gonna, I was just going to say, and then up to that's from 100 on up to 300,000 pounds. At 300,000 pounds, they become a heavy. And right. Maybe <laughs> yeah. The, the, the departing aircraft becomes a quote heavy, and may trigger another uh, um, lengthy, a uh, longer delay for the light GA airplane, but clearly also will start to engender operational issues for other aircraft, even if they weigh more than 100,000 pounds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, here's another uh, a data point that, tell me if this plays into the whole thing. Uh, field elevation, 5,016 feet. Thin air. You think that played into Thin this? Air. Or is, um, um, it was December, so it wasn't hot, probably. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it certainly could have. I mean, I can certainly see... Um, the, the, air, the helicopter is going to basically fly at zero airspeed um, and, and whatnot. The, the, um, the Cirrus is going to be approaching the runway at an indicated airspeed, which, as we all know, is going to be, in this case, um, quick, quick math is like 10% higher than the true airspeed would be at sea level. Tell me if it's 2% per 1,000 feet, right? Right. The, the increase in true airspeed over indicated airspeed. Or let me put it another way. The, um, the way you compute true airspeed, the rule of thumb is, is 2% for every 1,000 foot of altitude versus the indicated airspeed. So, yeah, he's, is it, yeah, it's two knots, you know, it's, it's 2%, not two knots. So, the pilot of the Cirrus was actually approaching the runway at a higher true airspeed slash ground speed than he would have been at a um, sea level airport. Okay. Now, what the hell difference does it make? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe one of my compadres here on this podcast would be able to shed some light. I don't know. On, on, whether, well, on whether the altitude would make a difference. I don't know. Yeah. I'm looking the, at the, uh, the helicopter is already, as Jeb pointed out, it's already airborne when we start to watch the video. We don't know from this how long it might have it might have lifted off closer to the threshold and kind of cruised low and slowed down the runway. You know, from outside that shot, 
for Hubbard taxied into position, uh, which would have set up some wake turbulence well, for the uh, Cirrus to come through. So let's let's look at some of the other data available in this NTSB report. You know, in just a moment, Jack, go ahead. I know. I just wanted to comment that uh, David talks about the, the, the NTSB report re- refers to him the, the the Cirrus pilot seeing the helicopter approaching. Um, and that made me think, and I don't know, it made me think that this helicopter was doing a touch-and-go or a hover-and-go or something like that. Um, this helicopter had arrived from, you know, in the pattern and, and either touched down or hover. We, we don't see the helicopter again in the video. No, I'm after, saying, it, I'm saying it arrived prior to the beginning of the video. I'm saying that it was in, yeah. it was in yeah. the pattern. That's when okay. the Cirrus pilot observed it and, and, you know, delayed his arrival for whatever reason. Okay, I, that, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, uh, here, here's the other punchline here, or at least some other data that we can plug into our, uh, our thinking. Um, this was runway 33. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the wind at, uh, observed at that time... Um, was from 110 degrees yeah. at, at three knots. Okay, so there was a slight quartering tailwind. Mm-hmm. That would make a big difference. I kind of wonder if it does too. At yeah. that altitude. Yeah. 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 Interesting um, the, little the airport. Thing, looking the, at the AOPA.org's yeah, uh, airport the, the thing, here. The thing that a wind, a breeze, like a very calm breeze would do, and, and if you look at um, um, wake vortices and you look at wake vortex avoidance, um, you've probably seen the drawings or the, or the, uh, the demonstrations where if there's a, um, a wind from, if there's a crosswind, for example, uh, the vortices of a departing airplane, of course, tend to spread or tend to move downward and outward. Okay, and if it, when when if there's a crosswind, the upwind vortice, vortice, I'm sorry, upwind vortex. I uh, can't conjugate today. The upwind vortex will tend to remain over the runway area against that that crosswind. Uh, the downwind vortex will move away from the runway area. So maybe that's what's going on here is, is that slight little tail-slash-crosswind um, allowed that the vortices, or the wake turbulence, the, the rotor wake from the, the, um, the Blackhawk to remain in that area. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Something's definitely askew because Cirruses don't normally land like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, here's another part of this that puzzles me. Um, And maybe I'm just, like, misremembering my training, all right? But if you're landing after the takeoff of an aircraft where you suspect wake turbulence, the procedure isn't to land long. It's to land short, isn't it? Well, that's where it gets really hinky in this report. So you you may have touched on it. The Blackhawk may have been doing a, a touch and go. Okay. Yeah. Um, the we, we talked about the hash marks, and that being, a, it's hard to tell exactly because we we don't see the entirety of the helicopter's flight. Uh, all we see is it above those hash marks and in departing already airborne. Okay. Um, we don't know if it approached, and if if in fact it had approached the runway. Um, then and landed and taxied away, then the pilot was doing the correct thing. What he missed was the helicopter then basically accelerated um, and took off. Oh, he thought the helicopter landed and then taxied off to the side. That could well be. Uh, yeah, okay. okay. What he missed was the helicopter taking off, uh, was taking off and departing the runway. Yeah. And in fact, at the end of the video, you see the helicopter on down. Oh, you do. Yes, I saw that. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so that's that's what the pilot missed. And you know, you, it's easy to do. He sees the helicopter come in. He's got his own airplane to fly. He says, "All right, that helicopter came to almost a stop. You know, right at the uh, right at those hash marks. So I'm going to land beyond those hash marks." And he went back to doing what you do in the pattern. And he didn't see the, the helicopter depart. Mm-hmm. Could be. Could, Could be. be. Anyway, we just well, saw the density altitude was should have been working in his favor. Uh, yeah. The calculations based on uh, the the reports numbers, 
it was 337 feet below sea level. Ah. What, what, what was? The density altitude? Density altitude. Really? How could yeah. that be, how, how cold? How cold? It was 60 what? degrees. That's 14 degrees Celsius. Yeah, Celsius. how could that? It's about yeah. 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Did you do Fahrenheit? David? You did the math. I just huh? used a National Weather Service uh, calculator. But did you really? enter Fahrenheit or Celsius? Uh, Celsius. All right. All 14 right, yeah. and 4, and then 30.22 uh, inches of mercury. Mm-hmm. And uh, 5,000 feet field elevation turns into below sea level? No. It, it field elevation like really it. doesn't factor into See, it. Four, like 14 me. degrees is almost ISA. Yeah. Maybe I'm doing something wrong here. Yeah. Anyways, while you're playing with that, I'm going to say, welcome, folks, to Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. I'm Jack Hodgson, and um, I'm talking to you here from, uh, it continues to be snowy, uh, Papa Papa, New Hampshire. Um, <laughs> I thought we weren't going to talk about that. No, we're not. That's it. We're done. Um, I'm leaving here in two days. Winter's over for me in like two days, so I, I don't care if it snows. Bring it on. Bring it on. I'm here, here in my virtual hangar talking to a couple of my good friends and uh, about uh, all things aviation and, and a few things not. Uh, one of those voices out there is Jeb Burnside talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How are you doing, Jeb? I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Uh, gotten getting some work done. I'll, uh, talking offline with you guys about how the project's got me kind of a little frustrated. but. Uh, uh-huh. Happens sometimes, uh, you know. You know, uh, but I, you know. I mean, it's understandable you get frustrated with all the snow you've had down there. So exactly, exactly. I, I, it's funny. The uh, I use uh, Weather Underground for my weather website and, and whatnot. And I don't know. Their, their website must be broken. They have no value whatsoever for the snow depth in Sarasota, Florida, this week. <laughs> well, see, you know, and that must be true because you saw it on the internet. Uh, of course, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. So it's got to be broken, right? And and also here in the uh, virtual hangar doing actual math, uh, um, is, uh, but maybe not well, I don't know, is uh, is our other good friend here, uh, Dave Higdon from uh, Wichita, Kansas. How are you doing, David? Doing lovely, thank you. Uh, just doing lovely. We're back to winter here, mm-hmm. and that's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> yeah. Wichita was in the news. I saw it. Um, um, well, Wichita's always in the news because it's a cool place. It's the aviation capital of the world. Um, uh, Spirit Aerosystems, is that what it's called? Uh, uh, got some really good press the last couple of days, didn't it? Or, or, was I reading that correctly? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no. No. <laughs> Just that business is good, and I think Boeing told them to be ready to be busy. I think that was the quote. That was the, that was the uh, slug line, the headline that I saw someplace. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. You, spirit, I thought you said century. Never mind. No, no, Spirit, uh, spirit Air Systems, spirit. the, the, the oh, Boeing yeah. spinoff that builds uh, airframes. And, uh, yeah, that's been they, – they've known that that was coming just waiting for Boeing to confirm the – firing order and the kickoff date for the rate increases because mm-hmm. uh, you just don't push a button and have everything run faster right. the next shift. Uh, but yeah, the, the backlog of, uh, of what, what they call the backlog orders for what they call single aisle airliners yeah. uh, in the 737 slash A320 category are just staggering. Yeah. Just staggering in a good way, uh, in a good way, yeah, uh, yeah, um, thousands and thousands of airplanes. I mean, they're talking about pushing up into the fifty airplane a month. Really, really. Yeah. Now, Spirit is a is a Boeing spinoff. Am I right about that? Yeah, it's Boeing spun off uh, what at the time was called Boeing Wichita, right? The civil side, which already built. Much of the stuff that Spirit builds now, uh, the uh, people that bought out that division made everybody apply for their old job back. They yep. didn't hire everybody back, but they got it off the ground. A couple of years later, the people that had bankrolled all that uh, took the company public. Uh, shares are traded. And, yeah. uh the reason I ask, the reason I ask is that one of the one of the stories I saw referred to described Spirit 
as being, and I'm, I'm quoting from memory, but it was something, a quote, something like this. It, it, it described Spirit as being the, something like the biggest independent manufacturer of airframe parts for Boeing and Airbus. It's the Air and Airbus part that took me by surprise. Is that accurate? Uh, for, yeah, from my understanding of it, yeah. They build, uh, they build Airbus fuselages as well. Well, no, they do different work for Airbus uh, predominantly. Okay. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they do quite a bit of uh, work. They also do work for, uh, I mean, for other than Boeing, uh, they also do work for Gulfstream. Uh, if, if I remember right, they do some wing work and some wing parts work. Uh, they may do the struts and the cells for some of the Airbus airplanes, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. but it's uh, it's it's a much more diverse company than when it was just uh, Boeing Wichita. Yeah. yeah. So, well, that's good. Good for Wichita. Good for the aviation industry, and uh, um, sounds good here. Well, yeah, it's the bright spot right now. Yeah. yeah. Now. This next item on the list, when I first saw this, I, I, when I first heard about this, um, I, I was a little confused, and I thought they were referring to um, the B-29 dock that's being um, restored there in, in Wichita. Um, and this is not about dock. Um, this is about Fifi, the B-29 that's been, uh, been around and flying for, for a number of years now. Um, so a, uh, it turns out that uh, a friend of the podcast, uh, a guy by the name of Brad Mazzari, codenamed Launchpad, um, Launchpad Mazzari, um, who uh, listeners may remember um, uh, Brad because he's the guy who very generously was sending us German chocolate for uh, once a year for quite some time. Uh, he was um, his 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 work. Uh, he was assigned in uh, Europe in Germany, and so he would come back to go to Oshkosh or to Sun and Fun, and he would bring us a, a box full of German chocolate, and that was very very cool. Yes. Brad's actually based in the U.S. now, um, and uh, apparently is based someplace down in Texas, and is in Texas. Uh, training to be part of the touring crew for the B-29 Fifi, um, which is just like pretty much made me jealous beyond belief um, oh, yeah. that, that he's going to be part of this. He started out just kind of kind of quietly posting pictures of him standing in front of Fifi, and I thought, oh, well, you know, he's at some sort of, you know, tour or museum visit or something like that. And then he starts, he starts uh, uh, publishing pictures of him inside the aircraft, and then the the uh, the what the coup de gras the no that's not the right term the the the, the big finish the punch the pièce de résistance the pièce de résistance thank you very much um, is a whole series of videos that Brad has posted on on YouTube uh, from uh, inside Fifi during a flight um, and uh, he's got some really really cool shots of from out of one of the uh, uh, top of the fuselage uh, bubbles um, oh, and also yeah. from right behind the uh, the flight deck and uh, cool stuff have you guys had a chance to look at some of these videos no i haven't but oh I yeah know. i mean it's, on one level it's kind of mundane it's just kind of shots of you know the airplane in but flight. it's a b29 but it's a b29 and it's like you know he's got his sticking his head out the bubble at the top of this fuselage you know just behind the wings looking you know looking forward and left and right as the airplane maneuvers they were actually doing stalls they were doing stalls in fifi uh, you know and uh, um it's uh, it's it's pretty cool and they had another another video showed while they were doing some air-to-air uh, photo shots and uh they, uh, you know, you could, you could see the uh, the photo ship um, in the to the. That's the one I'm looking at. Right ahead and to the left there. Um, oh. That's going to produce some really really pretty pictures, but uh, but uh, Brad is uh, is uh, training to be part of the touring crew. He's I mean I just can't even believe how jealous I am. It's very very cool. So we're going to have to have a talk with with Brad next time we see him, perhaps uh, in at uh, in a month or so at. Uh, we're going to have to start buying him chocolate. Yeah, we're gonna, absolutely. And we're going to have to treat him real good. Real I don't good. know what kind of chocolate we're going to I know, right. Yeah. to top his German uh, selections, but uh, uh, whatever it is, whatever maybe it is. Maybe we can get by with sushi or something. Sushi, right? yeah, maybe, or something like that, right? You know, David, you were going to say something? Congratulations, Brad! <laughs> yeah. Dude, dude, rock! It's very, very cool. It's, uh, as soon as I saw this on the list, I got my one of the uh, leftover lobster bibs from the last outing. So, yeah. mm-hmm. what's the buzz yeah, there in Wichita, David? David, what's the buzz there in Wichita about Doc? Um, and uh, they're, they're starting to actually talk about Doc, maybe making it to Oshkosh, and then we'll see both these airplanes side by side, and maybe even in formation at Oshkosh. That would be cool. That uh, that would be cool. The last I heard, 
officially on this was that they were working on uh, getting engines started and getting everything ready to, to put fuel in it and start the engines. Uh, there's some hesitancy, I think, to do that too early because uh, one of the conditions of the space they've got, as I understand it, is that they can't keep a fueled airplane in it. So that, that would present some issues starting sorry, it up. What? They can't keep – say again? I believe they can't keep it fueled up in the space that they're oh, being okay. allowed to use. Whatever, whatever hangar or whatever they're working in. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a World World War II era Quonset hut hangar, except it's big enough for a B twenty nine. It's yeah. actually big enough for a couple of them, because that's where they came from, Boeing, Wichita. Yeah. Now I was under the so Doc has not flown yet, right? That's that. I, not yet. No. Okay. For some reason, I thought that maybe they had flown, but uh, and, and you're suggesting they haven't even started the engines yet. I don't recall hearing about an engine start on it. I'm pretty sure that that would make big news. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well. Yeah. And uh, now going back to Fifi for a second here, um, did Fifi go through some sort of big maintenance cycle in the last you know six months or year? Did they have engine? Did they have to re-engine? It or was there some some news about Fifi? I'm trying to remember. Well, there was about three or four years ago. No, I don't think that was that uh, long when, ago. When at first they had some problems with the uh, outboard wing panel, some corrosion in them, uh, and they were able to keep it flying until they could have newer replacements made. I, I'm just trying. Uh, I seem to remember a story where they they, they needed new engines or and a new engine or a couple of new engines and that was going to be problematic because they're not all that easy to come by. Well, as I recall, it was Fifi and it's it was down this was, you know, going back three or four years. Okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe longer. Time and flies. What, what the deal was is the exact engine uh, is unobtainium the the exact engine that came on the airplane? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, some of our listeners will know off the top of our uh, of their head, you know which engine it is. It's the I think the double row or quad row uh, radial um, Pratt. That's you know on some ungodly amount of horsepower and and uh, mm-hmm. all this kind of thing. Those are unobtainium. But there's a, a couple of specs uh, below that engine that um, is obtainium. And uh, they rebuilt, I think, as the story goes, all four of Fifi's engines mm-hmm. to that that lower, different spec um, that is rebuildable for which you can get parts, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So the airplane, you know, the airplane will never fly at its gross weight again. Uh, the airplane's... A, uh, technically underpowered based on the way it left the factory back in the 40s. Mm-hmm. But it um, uh, does quite nicely, thank you, at, at the normal weights that it would be operating at today. Okay. Well, um, we can hope. I mean, I, if, if, if Doc is, hasn't even run engines yet, I, I wouldn't get too excited about the possibility of it being ready by July. But you never know. You never know. Well, maybe that's the last thing they need to do. Well, you know, who yeah. knows? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, a lot of hours have gone into it, and uh, they'll get it right eventually. I'm sure they'll take their time and, and do a good job with it. But. Well, yeah, and, and exactly. And I hope, you know, no one gets the idea that they've got to make it to Oshkosh this year. I, there, will be, there will be other years. Yeah, I'm sure they're smarter let's, than that. Let's, yeah, yeah let's, let's, let's do this the right way. Yeah. Another big piece of news this last last week, uh, is, since the last episode, that is, uh, which coincidentally was a week. We don't usually do them this close together, but uh, uh, here you go. Is uh, the FAA uh, released, well, you know, we, we thought they were going to release their drone regulations. It turns out what they released was uh, they announced the NPRM, the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, uh, basically the proposed regulations to regulate drones, commercial drones, I guess is the, is the is one way to describe it. Um, I don't want to, you know, this is not a drone podcast and I've been trying to cut back on drone talk for the last, for, for a while now, but, um, th- this certainly is, is relevant and, and, and important to GA pilots. So let's just talk about it for a second here. Yeah. Um, Jeb, I, I believe you actually listened to this press conference. No, I never did. You didn't get a chance I, to. I, they, they don't so usually I, do that, right? They, well, this wasn't really a press conference per se. It was a, it was a conference call, uh, with the media, 
um, at the end of which questions would be uh, would be taken. Okay. This was, and that's different from a press conference. How? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Generally, yeah. Well, okay. All right. Yeah, I get. I get that. It was a press um, briefing to announce yeah. what they were going to publish the next day. Right. Yeah. Thank so it happened. They wanted all the ink. Yeah. Sundays are slow news days. They knew they'd get a bigger bang than they would if they waited. And right. it just so happened, I think they would have got as big a bang no matter what day of the week. They yeah, did. I, I don't. I don't think it was necessary and, and, to do this. But the way they did this is on Saturday evening. They sent out an email, uh, uh, an alert, a media alert, advising of this um, conference call, this press conference at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning, mm-hmm. which is unusual. Uh, I won't say never, never been done before. <laughs> I'll just say it's unusual um, for them to to uh, um, do it this way. Um, and then I was, you know, like, all right, this sounds cool. I, I could, I could, you know, I should call in for this. So at the appointed hour, I call the the listed number, the number listed in the press release. And I was greeted with a message that there are no scheduled calls. There are no scheduled conference calls uh, at this number. Please check, you know, with whoever gave you this information. So I'm like, oh, right, we're off to the races here. Uh, so I call the the uh, uh, FAA's headquarters PR or public affairs shop, and of course no one answered at you know ten oh three on a Sunday morning, which didn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, well, this is um, Foxtrot uniform, and uh, went about my business. And I was still sitting at my desk a few minutes later. <clears throat> Email went off, and it's another email from the FAA saying the conference call has been postponed to ten thirty. And here's the other number to you. Here's the real number you should use. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. So I'm thinking. Well, I I just hope someone does lose their job over. This. <laughs> yeah. Well, all, all, all I'm really thinking. So I tried to call in at ten thirty and got the fast busy that the lines were over. Yeah, you so got to figure. Like, all right. So the the heck with this. I'll I'll read about it later, which is what I did. Mm-hmm. What did you read? What what can you can I give us uh, the highlights of what, what what these proposed rules are? No, yeah. <laughs> Dave, um, maybe you can because I off the top of my head I, I I hesitate to regurgitate them. Well, they uh, they're going to require the operators that's going to do this for commercial use. They're going to require the operators to pass a test. Right, you got to get it written. Uh, yep. And you got to get some documentation that you pass that test. Otherwise, that's meaningless. So this is all proposed, folks. Proposed. It's right. a note as a proposed rulemaking. Right. We're a long way from it turning into anything solid. Uh, a 400-foot limit stays in place, I believe it is. I thought it was fine, uh, but yeah. It's like I'm sorry, that. you're right. 500 for yep. this. Line of sight. Line of sight with that, the operator and the aircraft. Um, that right, that tech kind of takes away. Oh, we're going to have it go out and autonomously survey something out of our site, but we'll watch it on a computer screen. Yeah, uh, no not going to allow that. Yeah. Daytime, uh, only? Daytime, uh, only? daytime only. Daytime only, and some airspace, some logical airspace restrictions when you're talking about being in the proximity of any airport and. Well, it was more than that, uh, wasn't air, it? There was like you weren't, supposed to, re- you, you weren't supposed to fly air, over a human being, right? I mean, this is the the, the well. They, there's a there's a allowance there. You can fly over human beings who are involved in what you're doing. Okay. So if you're doing a photo shoot with live models, and you want the drone to get up high to do a top down shot, uh, or you're doing a video and you want to use the uh, low cost approach to doing a helicopter shot. Uh, yeah, that's going to be allowed. Yeah. Uh, somebody's going to craft a, a, a waiver, though, a, a liability waiver that I'm sure will become pretty commonplace for the people that do those jobs, the modeling jobs. Uh, and see, this was for craft up to 55 pounds. Right. And there's a, an, an exemption for uh, a lot of the regs. For craft that don't weigh more than four point four pounds, two kilograms. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I don't think they're going to be required to do the permit thing. Oh, and the craft over 4.4 pounds, uh, I know those have to be uh, in number, registered. Mm-hmm. It's going to be some pretty interesting challenges on a five-pound drone, the in number. Now, I think the buzz the buzz on, on both uh, social networks and also uh, um, uh, media um, was that these regulations are a little bit uh, more more flexible more they're not as restrictive as some people feared they might be um i think a lot of people in the in the rc world and in the in the commercial drone world are are encouraged by this is that is that your sense of it as well oh yeah uh because some of the stuff that has been floated around uh as possible content of an nprm included uh for commercial applications requiring the operator to have a, a at least a private pilot's license. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the step back toward them having to uh, have a piece of paper that says that they've taken a course and passed a test, a written test, uh, I think that's a reasonable compromise. Okay. Uh, the line of sight also limits, uh, uh, potentially limits, uh, the uh, likelihood of one of these things going astray. But that's one of those things where radio quality and atmospheric conditions can kind of make it uh, less than foolproof. Mm-hmm. But let's so get to unless the- it has an autonomous return function, like it homes in on the controller and comes right. back, if it stops talking to the controller uh, or hearing from it, it at least has something there to beacon in on. Yeah. So, so let me let me ask the let me get to my real question on this whole subject, at least as far as this podcast is concerned, and that is, how, how does this all relate to GA pilots? It, it, are, are, let's assume for a moment, and I know this is a big assumption, but let's assume for a moment that these regulations um, are enacted more or less the way we understand them now. Um, is this going to be good or bad for GA pilots? Somebody's going to say it depends. You watch. You know, it kind of depends. <laughs> yeah, that's. I, mean, I really hesitated to start it off with that word, but that's yeah. really the word. Most of us don't fly below 500 feet, and they certainly aren't going to be allowed to do any of this stuff near an airport. So is it even relevant? Is well, it, does this? Do these regs mean that the drones are going to be kept separate from us? Not necessarily. Yeah. Okay. And, and you say, you, you, I think you misstated something. What's you said that? that they could not be allowed near an airport. They would not be allowed near an airport. Okay. Um, I don't think that's correct. I think, and I've got the the file here open in my in my screen. Yeah, um, they have to have permission. They they they're allowed in class Bravo, Charlie Delta, and Echo airspace with required ATC permission. Now, I'm not aware of why ATC permission is required in Echo airspace unless the weather minimums are below that required for VFR. That having been said, um, I distinctly recall some discussion that um, they would be uh, UAS operations would be allowed as long anywhere as long as they did not interfere with uh, normal traffic patterns at an airport, whatever the hell that means. Right. Okay. I and I'm, I'm paraphrasing that. One of the other interesting things here. Um, that I, I, in looking at the, kind of the bullet points from this NPRM, um, although airworthiness certification by the FAA is not required, um, the operator must inspect the aircraft or the craft or the UAS or whatever the hell it's going to be called to ensure that it's in safe condition. In other words, must do a pre-flight inspection. Mm-hmm. And it must be registered. It, the aircraft, the UAS, has to not only be registered, but display the registration markings. Okay. Air, if the aircraft is too small to display markings in standard size, then the aircraft simply needs to display markings in the largest practicable manner. Really? Okay. That's what the, that's what this says, anyway. And is this the, uh, is this the end number we were talking about, or is yeah. this some, some other sort of number? Yeah. This is this is an end yeah. number. This is same requirements that apply to other all other aircraft. Okay. okay. So yeah. there's going to be an explosion of in-number registration. Well, yeah, okay. There is that. Oh, yeah. 
There is um, that. But again, this first is we have to have a rule. Yeah, first we have to have a rule. Secondly, all this applies to commercial uh, operations of, of these these uh, devices as opposed to private operation. The other thing jumping out at me here is they're creating a new part of the FARS, part 107. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah, uh, which is going to cover this. And um, it says, small un- uh, yeah, you were right, Jack. Small unmanned aircraft may not operate over any persons not directly involved in the operation. Me and Dave, he- but yeah, okay. Yep. Okay, what, what the hell does that mean? I what does over mean? Well, right. 500 feet over, 501 feet over, uh, I know, 400, I think- 494 feet over, what does that mean? I keep thinking of one of the regs that I learned early on in my training that's always stuck in my mind that has to do with uh, clearance from, um, uh, it's, it, what's, what's the phrase, people, structures and vessels congested areas versus non well i'm not even talking about congested right. areas i'm talking about it's like you know not you're not supposed to be within 500 feet if you're flying an airplane one of our airplanes mm-hmm. you're not supposed to be within 500 feet i believe was the number uh within 500 feet of a person structure or vessel mm-hmm. uh, except when landing or taking off mm-hmm. um right. does that apply always- a thousand thousand feet in the congested area okay yep all right so whatever that is, right? That's that's well, congested areas have been defined as a cluster of two houses. Have they really? Yeah, yes, out in the middle of the cluster Northport. within how close? All right, well we'll get into that. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. It's usually what they decide it is. Yeah, after, during during the at the hearing after at the hearing. Yeah, so I, I guess I'm still I, I still don't know the the answer or even a hint of the answer to my question of does this how does this matter to us? What's you know. Well, here's here's the thing for me. Uh, you ask how this is going to affect GA. Uh, it may bring some jobs uh, to uh, GA pilots uh, that can't fly professionally now for various reasons. But uh, they could fly these and, and I'm sure be able to handle the test pretty well. And they'd have the experience to be uh, laying hands on some of these larger machines that this rule would cover. Uh, on the flip side of it, it's going to take away some flying jobs because they'll be able to uh, do some things that now require a helicopter or a slow light aircraft to yeah. do. It'd be able to hand it off to uh, a drone big enough to carry the imaging equipment necessary to do the job sure sure that was another story there was another story this last week or so about how helicopter sales are down and the writer the author of the story you know couldn't understand why that might be true and i'm sitting there thinking duh drones yeah you know i got i can't imagine these drones aren't aren't affecting the use of helicopters and uh, um, thus the sale of helicopters but uh, well uh, the uh the 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 theoretical pipeline and power line patrol uh, with autonomous or remotely piloted. That is, remotely, there's a guy sitting in an office flying a machine over a couple of hundred miles of pipeline that, it, it, and a couple of hundred miles away from him uh, or her. Uh, that just kind of went down the tubes with this proposal. Uh yeah, but, but and having somebody fly along in a small aircraft controlling another small aircraft doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense yet. Yeah, uh, but I'm sh- I'm sure there's going to be a, a time come when having someone up where they can control an airborne platform in a really dangerous environment would be preferred over the closest place that person could stand and try to do the same thing. You know, like imaging over a battlefield or a disaster site or a, a, a volcano right uh that kind of stuff yeah so so anyways so like i said this is these are not rules these are proposed rules um but this is you know faa they're gonna move it right along and but they'll have these these rules will be approved by what summer this summer <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry the shame on us. Uh, <laughs> next summer? Summer sometime in the next century. No, seriously. How long does this kind of thing usually take to play out? It's, this is going to... The industry will, will be fortunate if this is a final rule by the end of 16. By the end of 16. Next year. Next year. Yeah. And, yeah. and you said they'd be lucky. 
David, do you agree so. with that? Yeah. 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 That, that, that would be, in my view, a fairly smooth, no speed bumps that would, yeah, path that, to. That would be a, that would be a, a like light speed uh, right. approval of this. Real quickly, I just wanted to highlight a couple of other things. These bullet points here from the, uh, 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 the executive summary in the NPRM about operators. Okay. Um, the pilots of small UAS would be considered operators. Operators would be required to, one, pass an initial aeronautical knowledge test at an FAA-approved knowledge testing center. Two, right. be, be vetted by the Transportation Security Administration. <laughs> yeah. Three, obtain an unmanned aircraft operator certificate with a small UAS rating, like an existing pilot airman certificate never expires. Pass a recurrent aeronautical knowledge test every 24 months. Okay. Be at least 17 years old. A biennial. Yeah, biennial flight review. Um, uh, make um, the UAS available for inspection or testing, as well as any other any documents or records required under the rule. Report an accident to the FAA within with, to the FAA, not to the NTSB, within 10 days of any operation that results in injury or property damage. How do you define that damage to the UAS itself? Is mm-hmm. that does that have to be report, reported? And then, of course, obviously, conduct a pre-flight inspection. Right. Right. Um, My favorite line is vetted by the TSA. I love it. Yeah. I do love it. So. Yeah. So, anyways. All right. Well, well uh, it, 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 my, my last thought on this, and yeah. I, I make it real short and sweet. Uh, I think the FAA is to be applauded at producing a proposal that is trying to keep on an equal footing commercial pilot work and re- responsibilities with commercial drone pilots on the same level. And then the drone pilots under this proposal get off the hook because they don't have to pass a second-class medical. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think this is a very well-conceived uh, uh, policy. Um, those who are going to be pounding the table saying, we got to change this, we got to change the other thing, um, I think they're losing a uh, side of the bigger picture. Um, and uh, I, I'm pleasantly surprised that the FAA came out with this. I, I would be even gr- more pleasantly surprised if they required a commercial pilot certificate. Yeah, well. Because anyways. I happen to have a commercial pilot certificate. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, that, was, that would bypass all the other stuff. That would be a right. good thing, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, there but you until go. then, you know. Yeah, right. So, anyways. Well, it, well I think, think the industry uh, got off a little bit by the uh, people that are awarded these, or granted these certificates that are going to be required. Uh, I didn't hear anything in there or see anything in there about them having to pass a actual flight review with an FAA examiner looking, you know, standing behind them while they do some basic maneuvers with their drone. So that's another one where, okay, you, you pass a written test and the knowledge. You have the knowledge. You go through the course. You, you get the paperwork. Uh, you can uh, start to learn how to fly it then. Yeah. You know, and here's, here's another question. Is this... Um, I don't know. I don't know what the correct word is, but but can can um, someone with um, more than a UAS operator certificate, an unmanned aircraft operator certificate with a small UAS rating, like a private pilot, is he or she automatically grandfathered into being able to operate one of these? That's not. I don't see that in here. Maybe it is, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I didn't a, see it in there, what? and it's something that I could see being added if enough uh-huh. people make comments about that very same thing. Mm-hmm. What about a sport pilot? You know, um, where I, is I don't that see why not. I don't see why not either. If they're going to make it this easy, yeah. Um, well, I don't know. Anyway, uh, so in the meantime, in the, as, as one FAA source said, this does not mean that commercial flight of drones is, is now approved. Um, right. It, right. It, we're, we're still under the rule. You have to get a one-off uh, uh, approval. Was it part 133 or 
Section 133 or something like that is the is the uh, uh, approval. You get, you get a waiver. Yeah, and so it's basically a, 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 a you know one shot or, or you know each individual case has to be approved. Each each individual operator has to be approved um, by uh, I guess it's FAA uh, until this. Uh, NPRM is approved in whatever form it's approved in. My last question is, uh, what's the over-under on this uh, versus uh, uh, third-class medical exemption? Which one happens first? <laughs> it depends. It depends. Man, man, that's a tough one. We now I got the FAA on track to do well, two you, things we want to you, see. You, them. You, the way you asked the question, I would say this. Yeah. Uh, you asked the question, is third-class medical exemption? Yeah. Um. Will all operations requiring a pilot, private pilot certificate of an aircraft weighing 6,000 pounds or less be deregulated to not require a medical certificate? The answer is no. That will not happen before this becomes a final rule. Why not? You seem to have a very um, clear idea of this. There may be some other relief. There may be some other deregulation of the existing third-class medical certificate requirement, but it will not involve elimination of the requirement before piloting a a 6,000-pound airplane. Hmm. Okay. What else here? Um, I think, Jeb, you're the one that put this on the list. Uh, You called it apples and oranges. this is a story um, on the Yahoo News site. Uh, the, apparently, it's from a something called LiveScience.com. Yeah. Headline is why private planes are nearly as deadly as cars, which of course is just clickbait kind of. It, it, it's, it's a lot of clickbait, and of course that's why I clicked on it. Yeah. Uh, but the, the head the headline you, is. You thought is this was quite a remarkable story, Jeb. I, I kind of did in that the first of all the head the headline is is wrong. Uh, basically, tell us why it's wrong. Maybe even read it. This is why private planes are nearly as deadly as cars. Okay. Um, the article basically goes into a lot of different ways to measure, um, in an apples to apples fashion, uh, private automobiles, the, the safety of private automobiles, and the safety of private aircraft. Um, and it it. it it, it uh, has some factual and in, in, in true uh, statements in here. So the accident rate in general aviation hasn't budged much over the past decade. That's a true statement um, on, on its face. That's, uh, in a macro sense, that's a fairly true statement. Then a lot of quotes in here from NTSB types and, and whatnot um, talks about... Uh, uh, how the fatality rate in GA has has uh, remained fairly flat over the last few years. What in the, the apples and oranges is kind of comes from a quote here um, uh, from uh, uh, NTSB member Earl Weiner um, says it's apples and oranges in many cases. Trying to measure automobile accidents and in private aircraft accidents in the same uh, um, same way. Um, for example, um, we typically measure general aviation safety as accidents per 100,000 hours of operation. Um, we typically um, measure um, automobile accidents, accident rates, by miles traveled. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. That we can't. There's no way to put that apple and that orange together, given the data that we currently have. Um, There's a lot of other things in this article. I mean, first of all, the head talks about private planes, but in like the fifth, sixth paragraph, they started talking about, um, say, Colgan Air Flight three four zero seven, which was the a 2009 accident involving a, a Dash 8 near Buffalo, New York. Right, that was the icing accident. Yeah, yeah. What, what the hell does that have to do with, with, with private aircraft operations? And it had all, propellers. It had yeah, propellers, exactly. yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a lot of other little stuff in here, but basically there's just a lot of straw men 
uh, as I call them, um, um, that are, are dredged up and, and uh, uh, argued and then kind of disposed of. It, it does not paint general aviation in a, uh, in a favorable light. Uh, that's despite, you know, extensive quoting from, uh, uh, by uh, uh, Bob Goyer, uh, editor at Flying Magazine, as well as uh, um, a variety of other people, uh, Wiener being another one. Um, it's I don't know. It's, it's just a it's just a very curious article, which is why I brought it to y'all's yeah. attention. I, I, and and although it's it, it is negative, you know, somewhat negative on on general aviation, it's not the kind of wildly negative one we usually see. You know. Right. I mean, usually these kinds of articles, these are the, you know, what I would characterize as the USA Today stories, you know, that just go crazy about, you know, exaggerating and, and outright, you know, distorting the, 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 yeah. uh, the history here. Um, and, and this one doesn't do that. I mean, the, the, the headline alone is interesting because, it, you know, it says, it says that, uh, that basically it says that cars are more, danger, more deadly than private planes. Um, it, well, there's, there's a lot of... of scraping of the surface here also for example there's talking about uh engine failures and uh what not because losing an engine in a single engine aircraft is obviously a lot worse than losing one on a twin engine plane warrior said and there are essentially no (laughs) and there are essentially no single engine commercial planes in flight well that's simply not true yeah yeah that that, the last part of that sentence that is simply not true i two words Cessna Caravan. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, yeah. And there's any number of other commercial operations involving single-engine airplanes. Oh, yeah. I mean, Alaska, is, you know, it's just filled. Sure. Exactly. You know, exactly. Alaska and, and up in Canada, the bush right. pilots are, are right. that's what it's all about. You know? um, the other thing that, that, didn't, that this didn't get into, I think it probably did talk about the Cirrus uh, uh, airframe parachute system. Um but it, it it also hasn't talked about what some what's going on within the industry um, that is designed to address what this article, in fact, uh, names as, as one of the biggest categories of accident: the loss of control accident. Um, there's a lot that's been going on in the industry in recent years designed to address loss of control accidents, as Dave well knows. Uh, from stuff he's done for me in the magazine, uh, the whole uh, loosening of of uh, the whole deregulation of the uh, angle of attack indicator uh, device, mm-hmm. and and designed to not only lower the uh, the uh, purchase price of such a device, but make his installation uh, extremely simple and um, inexpensive. Uh, that whole process is designed to help minimize loss of control access. There's a lot of other stuff going on out there behind the woodwork uh, on things like this. This article does not touch on uh, much of that at all. Yeah. And that, that's another article this size in and of itself. Yeah. So, anyways, any particular takeaway for us from this, Jeb, or is it just remarkable? <sighs> it's just... Uh, the takeaway is, I guess... Um, twofold. One, um, general aviation safety, safety of, of operating private aircraft can stand a lot of improvement. There's, there's no question about that. But the vast majority of the operations we conduct are safe. Mm-hmm. Um, the punchline is um, we can always do better. And if we don't do better, someone's going to do that for us. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of my my uh, summation thoughts about the article in general. That the two things that the guy got most correct are that we're still working on improving the safety of general aviation, uh, and that we still seem to make the same mistakes over and over too often, right. but. Man, that's the most, you know, that's like telling somebody if you can spend 15 minutes and get 15% off your car insurance. <laughs> hey, it worked for me. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Shout outs. What do we got here? 
Sure. You guys got anything? I got one that's on the list. That's the only one that's on there. You guys, anything that you're you're keeping in your pocket there? Uh, oh, uh, after you. All right. Um, I, I just want to call attention. I hadn't heard that this was coming, and the moment I heard about it, I got very excited. David McCullough um, is a, uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, biographer, uh, uh, writer. And uh, he's been he's done uh, biographies about all sorts of notable people. Um, the one that most people would probably know the best is he wrote a, a terrific book a bunch of years ago about John Adams, uh, one of the U.S. founding fathers, um, which was turned into a terrific miniseries uh, that was uh, on mm-hmm. TV there a couple few years back. Um, David McCullough, I've read David McCullough books off and on for years now. Um, I was thrilled recently to discover that David McCullough is about to release um, a biography of the Wright brothers. And uh, I just can't tell you how how excited I am about this. Uh, it is scheduled to be released on May 5th, 2015. And uh, it's, uh, you know, and I, I expect that it will have the, the normal David McCullough, you know, kind of depth of, of just richness. I mean, he just does incredible research and really, really digs into the personalities of his subjects. And uh, although we've, we know a fair amount about the Wright brothers, I, I don't think we can know too much. And I'm really, really interested to hear uh, David McCullough's take on uh, the Wright brothers, uh, both as people and as, uh, as uh, you know, aviation inventors. And, and yeah. uh, so this is going to be very, very cool. Um, just, it, just a quick warning, though, to, to people that like to buy things online. Resist the urge to take up any offers of getting an early copy of this book signed by the Wright brothers. Yeah, because chances are that's not, you know, they didn't sign very many books, so the odds are you're not going to get one of those. Um, but uh, it is a, it is available for pre-order on uh, on uh, Amazon.com, both the hardcover and the Kindle version. Uh, and uh, you can uh, pre-order it now, or you can wait until May 5th and, and order it once it uh, actually ships. But uh, David McCullough, the Wright Brothers, I'm looking forward to it a lot. What do you got? I just wanted to give a quick shout to uh, Paula Dirks, uh, the uh, head of the Aircraft Electronics Association. She uh, came to Wichita and spoke to the Wichita Aero Club yesterday and uh, uh, talked a great deal about the uh, challenges of meeting the ADSB installation deadline of January 1, 2020. Uh, so, uh, always fun to see her and uh, and. Uh, uh, our old friend Jeff Hill, uh, who edits the magazine that Jim and I both write for. So mm-hmm. good to see you all again, and nice job, Paula. Cool, yeah, outstanding. You guys, uh, you, you have a little bit of aviation stuff going on there in Wichita, David, don't you? It's uh, oh, from time to time. I'm a little jealous. It's uh, you know, even when you're riding your motorcycle, you're doing aviation stuff. You went out to that great Stearman Field again. That was. Uh, but uh, that's another yeah, story I'd, for another. I'd, I'd take another warm day like that one real yeah. soon. Apparently it hasn't been quite that warm since then. But anyways, Jeb, shout outs? You know, I'm going to pass. Okay. Uh, I, nothing really jumps at me right now. All right, so. then. Well, we're going to wrap this up then. Uh, thank you, guys. It's always a pleasure. It's a, yeah. a, a thrill to uh, to uh, get on the phone and, and, and chat and catch up. And uh, and uh, I can envision myself being in Florida again, not looking out the window and seeing the snow here. <laughs> but, uh, anyways. That's, uh, uh, let's see now. Let, Mike, me, Mike, let me check. Hang on a second. Hang on. What, 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 what? Is the snow stopped? Yeah, it's, it's stopped here. The Florida snow has stopped. Good, because yes. I'm going to be there in two days. So it's uh, yeah. excellent. Excellent. That's Jeb Burnside. Thank you, Jeb. Jeb is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. What you been working on, Jeb? What's going on? Um, well, I've been working on a piece for uh, AEA, as David was talking about a moment ago. Mm-hmm. Um, um trying to get it out the door here uh, maybe tonight maybe first thing in the morning it should have been done a couple of days ago but that's typical mm-hmm. uh and um getting ready getting, you know getting geared up for the uh the uh, april issue i guess it is of uh, aviation safety and uh looking forward to that i uh, had a good time uh, um with uh the march issue i got a few tricks up my sleeve for april and uh, watch this space. Sounds cool. Where can yeah. people find you and your stuff on the internet? On my stuff. Well, aviationsafetymagazine.com is a great place to start. Um, AEA.net. Uh, occasionally I'm in that magazine and, and doing some other work for AEA. And of course, on the Twitter machine, uh, I am Burnside J. Excellent. Excellent. 
And uh, Dave Higdon, uh, also a pleasure to, to chat. Uh, Dave is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's Av Buyer magazine. David, what are you working on? You've alluded to a few things already, but tell us more. Well, uh, this month's Av Buyer, I've got a couple of pieces in. Uh, one of them talks specifically about how the uh, market for aircraft finances has changed in the last few years from when it kind of hit the skids at the uh, at the onset of the Great Recession. Uh, and then some of the ongoing stuff we'll talk about next time. Very cool. <laughs> where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, com is where you can find the magazine. Uh, as Jeb was talking about, AEA.net for the avionics news stuff. Uh, and I'm going to have a piece in his hot little hands before the end of the week for aviation safety, but we'll talk about that when it's ready to come out. Right, right. Very cool. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, I've been, uh, you know, we're just basically trying to trying to just trying to survive this crazy winter. I'm telling you, every time I go to I go to Florida for a few weeks early in the winter, and then I have to come home, and it's just like the the contrast is almost almost more than my mind can bear. Um, but uh, I, I've been dealing with snow up here and uh, and uh, uh, getting ready. But I'm going back to Florida in a couple of days, no joke. And uh, I'll, I'll be down there for a couple of weeks. Uh, unfortunately, I won't get a chance to see Jeb, I don't think. But uh, but uh, I'll be down where it's warmer. And uh, but in that's general, what, that's um, what counts. What's that? That's what counts. Yeah, we're getting uh, uh, starting to prepare for uh, Sun and Fun, which is coming up in uh, oh, yeah. just about two months from now. Is Sun and Fun? It's very late this year, um, and uh, uh, UCAP will be at Sun and Fun. We'll give you some more details over the next few episodes, but uh, but we will be there um, at at Sun and Fun, and we'll be doing some episodes and uh, uh, having lots of opportunities to visit with folks. and And we hope that anyone who's there will say hi. But more on that uh, in the next couple of episodes. Um, you can follow me uh, at uh, uh, on Twitter. Uh, Jack Hodgson is my uh, Twitter name. Uh, you can learn more than you really ever wanted to know about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Um, and uh, uh, what else? There was something else I was going to say. I don't know. Anyways. I don't thank- remember either. Yeah. Well, what, well, there was something else you were going to say. Well, Jip, I was going to say, sure. for sure, I was going to say, big thanks to Jeff Ward for all his help ah. with the show notes and in the forums. Uh, thanks to Mike Morgan, Roy Searle, to Jim Goldman, and to the many other listeners who have helped with creating the UCAP disclaimer clips. Uh, and don't forget, you can check out the rest of the UCAP website. You can chat with us directly and with many of your fellow listeners in the Uncontrolled Airspace forums. Also see who's doing what in the new ratings webpage of fame and much, much more. David, was there something you wanted to say? Live the longest you can live by flying, because uh, time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talk, and let's go flying. Hasta la vista. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.